Hello, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, I am coping by researching serial killers, and it is quite possibly the worst coping mechanism I've picked up. <laughs> but it's better than drugs. Yeah, that, that's true. So, so today I will be sharing with you a story that's better than doing drugs. Well, I'll take it. <laughs> that's all I can say about it. But without further ado, let's get right into it. I'm Sonia. I'm Maddie. And welcome to Crim. Woo! Have you heard of Arthur Shawcross? I don't think so. Okay, so I hadn't either, but then I stumbled upon this website that I don't know how I haven't stumbled upon before, but it's like called biography.com, and there's like a section for serial killers, and like it's all over the world too, so I was like, I don't know how I've never stumbled upon this before. But the first person that I clicked on happened to be this man. He's a very horrible man. Um, we don't like Arthur Shawcross. I mean, I think anyone in that the serial killer category <laughs> is a safe bet to say we don't like them. <laughs> this is fair. This is facts. If your name is on a list of serial like you. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, Arthur John Shawcross was born on June 6th, 1945, and he died on November 10th, 2008. And I do just want to let you know that I was going to say that this was really recent, that it happened two years ago. It did not happen two years ago. Um, my perception of time <laughs> is that we're yeah. still in 2010, so. It do be like that. Yeah. Um, he was better known, though, as the Genesee River Killer. Have you perhaps heard of the Genesee River Killer? I don't think so. Yeah, neither had I, so... <laughs> I say this like we're experts, but we're really just children. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he was known as the Genesee River Killer, but he was actually born in Kittery, Maine. And I didn't know that Kittery, Maine was a place, but I kind of love the name. Don't really love that he was born there. It kind of taints the whole thing. But we move. Um, he was the oldest of four children, and his parents were Arthur Roy Shawcross and Elizabeth Eurekes Shawcross. So they lived in Maine for a while, but they ended up moving to Watertown, New York, when he was really young. And so that's kind of where he started going to school. Um, and he really didn't do that well. Um, he was tested, and it was shown that his intelligence, like his IQ, was an 86, which is quite, like, it's, it's pretty below average. Um, and he did say later on that he was a frequent bedwetter during childhood. And I don't know if you know the McDonald triad. I don't know if we've talked yeah. about this, yeah. But um, it's like the three factors that if a child has two of them, they're considered to be like predicted to have or associated with violent tendencies um, or like serial offenses. 
in the future and so the triad is cruelty to animals obsession with fire starting and persistent bedwetting so at this point in time he really has only one of those the persistent bedwetting but i will talk about it later on he does sort of develop um an obsession with fire so it it i know that the the triad has been like um not you know well approved by everyone but i mean i guess it is kind of true in this situation Mm. um so up until now everything's kind of just like he has a little bit of a violent tendency but it's mostly just the bedwetting that's the problem and then he later claimed that his mother sexually abused him from when he was seven years old so that was probably what caused the behaviors and the acting out and it wasn't just you know like something on its own Mm -hmm. um It kind of just got worse from there. During middle school, he started a sexual relationship with his sister. Oh. Yep. Yeah, a Um, lot worse. Or, I mean, both are bad. (laughs) It's not good. Incest. It's just, it's not good. Um, He then said that he, after this incident with his sister, um, he had sexual relationships with a man, and then that... and after that, he experimented with bestiality. Oh. Um, yeah, no. Not no good. We really don't support bestiality. No. Um, I don't know if you can technically count that as cruelty to animals, but I, I feel like I would too. I would, yeah. like, personally. I don't think it's, like, technically in the, the triad or whatever, but I think that's definitely cruelty to animals. Yeah. Um. So during all of this happening with him, he developed a reputation at school as a bully, and he would frequently act out and act violent. Um, school really didn't go that well for him, and he dropped out in 1960 when he was in the ninth grade. Um, that's kind of when he started really acting on the urge to like act out, I guess, in terms of um, like robbery and breaking and entering, those kinds of things. Um, over the next few years, after he dropped out of high school, he came under suspicion for various different crimes, um, the most prominent being arson and burglary. And in December of 1963, he received his first probationary sentence, and that was for smashing a shop window. Um, yeah. His parents actually, later on when he was kind of telling the, the people this, you know, telling his story or whatever prisoners do when they're convicted of murder. Um, so, but his parents came forward and they disputed all of these claims that he was molested as a child. Um, it was clear that he was very troubled as a child, but they said nothing. They were like, we didn't molest him. Mm, um, that's tough because like... He could be lying, but also, like, they have a stake in saying yeah, that he was lying. Exactly. Like, we really don't know who to believe. But yeah. his siblings also came out, like, his parents and siblings both stated that he had a normal childhood and that the events were just, like, the product of his imagination. Hmm. Um, and I think, honestly, like, there really is, you're right, there's no way of telling, the tr- like, who's to know who's telling the truth here. Yeah. Just cuz like you're like you're right both parties had a stake in it. Mhm. 
But the other thing to consider is that Shawcross did tend to change his stories with different interviews, just like okay. small details and stuff like that. So, I mean, honestly, like in the grand scheme of things, like he's still a bad person. Yeah. And you can't blame what he did later on on his childhood, even though that could play a factor, I feel like. Yeah. Um, no child deserves to go through that, but we don't know no. what happened here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in April of 1967, when he was 21 years old, he was drafted into the U.S. Army. Oh, that seems like it's not going to make anything better. <laughs> nope. It, it does not. Um, at some point between this time and, like, between, you know, him being arrested and going on probation to him being drafted, he got married to a woman called Sarah and had a son in October of 1965. So that's two years before he got drafted. Okay. Um, but when he got drafted, he divorced his wife and gave up rights to their son, who was about a year and a half old at this point. And never saw them again. So kind of just, oh. like, got married and then left. Wow. Um, I don't know what that says about his mental state at the time, but I mm. don't think it's good. That's, yeah, that's true. Yeah. He, during the time when he was drafted, he served one tour with the 4th Supply and Transport Company of the 4th Infantry Division in Vietnam. I'm going to be totally honest with you, none of those words mean anything to me but Vietnam. <laughs> um... But so I guess what I got from that is that he served in Vietnam. Um, but here's when things got like, everything just gets worse in this story. So here's the worst part. He later on boasted about these really grotesque that he went through in Vietnam. And honestly, I really don't feel comfortable saying them. And that's saying okay. something for this yeah, podcast. Okay. Like it, it was not good is what okay. it was. Um, and he basically just invented this. Like, this was his imagination. Oh. Because he never served in position. When he was serving, he was never in combat. So... Yeah, I was gonna say, it sounded like he was, like, moving supplies from yeah. what I got of the title. Right, right. yeah, it was really about supply nice. transport. So he basically, mm -hmm. like, came back and um, here all of these combat exploits that I did and I'm really proud of them but he made the whole thing up he was never he was never in that position and I'm not gonna lie that scared because he thought of it mm -hmm. like that's just his brain yeah. being like this yeah. is what happened horrible disgusting um yeah. yeah so after the war he was allowed to go home and he was stationed at Fort Sill in Lawton Oklahoma and at this point, he was still a. He worked in an armory where, like, I think they maintained weapon systems. Um, at this point, while he's in Oklahoma, he got married again. His second wife was a woman called Linda. And Linda actually said that there were several aspects of his behavior when they were together that were really disturbing. And a big part of that was his desire to start fires. Um, so again, this is like persistent wedding and fire starting, like our common theme here. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently, the army psychiatrist later told her that he was sexually aroused by setting fires. Ooh. Nothing good can come of that. 
No. I'm terrified of fires. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So he was discharged from the army um, a bit after this, and he and Linda moved from Oklahoma back to New York to Clayton, New York. And Linda was just really unhappy, and I don't blame her. It feels like his behavior was incredibly troubling. And And she's moving away from, if she was presumably from Oklahoma, that's also tough. Yep. Yeah, I don't blame her, and she she got divorced. She ended up filing for divorce um, pretty soon after they moved. And at that point, he wasn't in a marriage anymore. He was on his own. Mm-hmm. And I guess he had nowhere to, like, channel himself. Committing more crimes, such as going back to, from before, arson and burglary, what he was comfortable with. Okay. Um... At this point, he was caught and persecuted for his crimes, and he got five years at Attica Correctional Facility and later was transferred to Auburn Correctional Facility. Okay. He served 22 months of those five years in prison and then was granted an early release in October of 1971. And apparently the reason for his early release was because there was a prison riot and he heroically rescued a correctionals officer. So people were like, yeah, you're fine now. Go free. Interesting. What? (laughs) Show me the logic, first of all. (laughs) Like, good on you for saving someone, but I don't think that's a reason to just be like, ah, forget your past crimes, you're cured. Yeah. Anyway, he was released. And he returned to Watertown, New York, which was his hometown. And there he got a job with the Watertown Public Works. And at this point, somehow he got married for a third time. Damn. I don't know where he's finding all of these people willing to marry him. (laughs) But they got married. Um, And then I don't know if you thought that the stuff that I told you already was bad. But it gets worse. I mean, yeah, I was gonna. There haven't been a hasn't been a murder yet. No, so you I'm wish it would worried. just stay like that, you know. <laughs> One of these days, I'm gonna tell you a story about someone who just like robbed a few places and set a few fires, <laughs> went to jail, and then was fine. Or you could do um on and that's why we drink. Christine did a pot or an episode on the Grinch, but like disguised it as a true crime story for him. <laughs> and I thought that was funny. I'm gonna do that to you. One of these days, get ready. I will. I'll be on the lookout. <laughs> Um, anyway, back to everything went wrong. Um, on May 7th, 1972, he lured 10-year-old Jack Owen Blake into a wooded area in Watertown where he raped and killed him. Is this a child? It, 10, yeah. A child. Um... Apparently, he actually took Blake on a fishing trip a few days prior, um, and then when he went missing, just claimed that he had no knowledge of of why this happened or where he was. Um, This happened on May 7th. They couldn't find the body until September 5th when they got an anonymous tip about this. Apparently, like, he was hidden so well in these woods that it took four months to find him. Yeah, woods are scary, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and it gets even worse from there. Just about three days before this anonymous tip was given to the police, he raped and killed eight-year-old Karen Hill. Oh, God. Um, and she was actually just visiting Watertown with her mother for Labor Day weekend. Um, and when police found her, she had mud, leaves, and other debris forced down her throat and in her clothing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so, neighbors reported seeing him with Karen by the bridge that she was found under, so he was under immediate... Um, which I guess, like, at least he was caught. Like, at least he was seen and under suspicion, and then the police arrested him the next day. Why was it just, like, normal for him to be around this small child in the first place? I don't know. I guess he had just, like, had encounters with other children in the neighborhood. So people were like, yeah, he seems a bit creepy, but he's, like, so then they just saw him with this child, and they were like, yeah, he's with the kids sometimes. And then she died. Yeah. Um, and it's horrible. Because yeah. she was eight. Yeah. I, like, I... There are a lot of horrible things that we talk about, but just children. Like, mm-hmm. there's no reason. No. And it hurts. Yeah. Um, but he was arrested and the, the very next day and a grand jury indicted him for, for her murder. Um, but then on October 17th, 1972, he ended up pleading guilty to first degree manslaughter for both deaths and was sentenced to prison with a maximum of 25 years at Attica Correctional Facility. So there was no set time here. They just said, you'll be in prison up until 25 years. And I think that means, like, early release or parole or something is an option. Okay. Um, I don't think it should be. Mm-mm. For someone who murders two children. Yeah. They should not be allowed out. Um, but apparently this plea bargain was allowed because he confessed that he killed Blake, even though there was no evidence towards the killing. Despite the fact that, like, they went to a fishing trip in the same area of the woods, like, a few days before. Mm-hmm. Is that not evidence? Like, it's circumstantial, but I feel like it's Yeah, there. it's not enough to look beyond reasonable doubt. Horrible. Um, and I guess also people said that he could have just argued that he was under an extreme emotional disturbance, and the jury would have probably concluded that it was manslaughter, so, like... That's the direction it would have gone in. Okay. So better to plead guilty for it than to have the jury decide that or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in prison for 14 years. And then... Probably inexperienced prison staff and social workers decided that he was no longer dangerous. Okay. Yep. This was after... Mind you, after they were given warnings by psychiatrists saying that he is a psychopath. Mm-hmm. So they just let him out. Um, in April of 1987. And at this point, you can imagine, this man has a criminal record for murdering two children. 
And criminal records are public. So when he was released, he had a really hard time settling down. Um, Neighbors who realized who he was protested his presence. Employers refused to hire him. So he moved to Binghamton, New York. And then again, like it was horrible here. So he relocated to Delhi, New York with his girlfriend, Rosemary Wally. Again, how does this man keep on finding women? Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't imagine it. Um, Delhi residents, again, at this point became aware that they were there and they were really unhappy about it. So the two of them moved to another place in New York. Like, like she's staying with him, first of all. Like, I, I really hate judging a woman's choices. But at this point, she knows that he murdered two children and she's still staying with him. And that yeah. really hurts me. Yeah. Um, at this point, because he was having such a hard time integrating murdering two children, um, the authorities sealed his records to prevent people from knowing who he was or what he had done. So hopefully he could settle down. And I want you to remember this detail because it absolutely kills me later on. All right. Um, In late June of 1987, his parole officer moved him and Wally into a transient hotel in Rochester, but failed to notify local authorities about this action. Um, In mid-October, they found permanent lodging in another address in Rochester. Um, And at this point, they got married. But like all of his other marriages, he wasn't happy, and neither was she. And I guess feeling unfulfilled in this marriage meant that he had to look elsewhere for pleasure. Mm. And that meant both prostitutes and his new girlfriend, Clara Neal. Okay. I've lost track of how many women consensually want to be with this man. I think this is at least the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> We don't know how many in between, though. Like, how many girlfriends he had in between there. True, true. (sighs) Disgusting. Um, In March of 1988, in this unfulfilling marriage for him where he wasn't happy, in this time when he was being with prostitutes and a new girlfriend, he was still unfulfilled and decided to begin murdering people again. Um, But at this point he started targeting prostitutes in the Rochester area. He was caught less than two years later after he started, but not before he killed 12 people. Oh my god. Yeah. 12 people in less than two years. Yeah, that is is so many. It's it's too many. Yeah. Honestly, one person is too many. I don't know how he got away with this for that long. Yeah. Um, He was actually convicted of only 11 of those. Um, but, okay, so I'm, I'm going to read you their names because I think that they deserve to be remembered because that was horrific, um, what happened to them. So the women in, in this situation, unfortunately, were Dorothy Blackburn, Anna Marie Steffen, Dorothy Keeler, Patricia Ives, June Stott, Marie Welch, Frances Brown, Kimberly Logan, Elizabeth Gibson, Darlene Trippy, June Cicero, and Felicia Steffens. And that, that list is too long. long. Mm. 
-hmm. Like, that list is horrifically long. Yeah. Um, All of the victims were murdered in Moreau County, except for Gibson, who was killed in the neighboring county. I think it's Wayne County. Um, And here's the thing about this case is that I guess he switched up his M.O., he made it two years without being caught um because i think retired detective robert keppel apparently argued that the detectives investigating the case relied very heavily on the mo of each of the like victims mm-hmm. um and at times they were searching for multiple suspects because there were really small differences in the profiles of each of the victims that they thought that it must have been an entirely new killer like, for example, Dorothy Blackburn was found with bite marks on her genitals and was strangled, but Anna Stephan was found to have died from asphyxia and was found too far away. So they couldn't link the two. Mm. Um, when Dorothy Keeler and Patricia Ives were found, the press finally started to think that the cases were linked and at this point named the killer the Genesee River Killer. In all the previous cases, apparently there was some attempt at concealment, and so the police at this point, when it was finally starting to be linked together, they realized that this indicated some sort of previous criminal or military experience, and so they basically advised all of the prostitutes working in the area to use extreme caution because, like, they were being targeted, and they needed mm-hmm. to know about that, that it was one person who was targeting them. Um, and at this point, because they realized that this was previous criminal experience or cr- a previous military experience, they checked criminal records for offenders who might be living in this area. But Shawcross's criminal records were sealed, mm-hmm. so he was not a suspect. He wasn't even on their radar. Could they not see his military experience, though? I guess they could, but... They didn't, like, find it of note. I don't think so, because I guess there must have been a lot of people with military experience living in the area. Like, this was just after the war. That's true. And if they're really looking for someone who has experience killing people, like, you would look for a criminal... Yeah. The part that absolutely kills me is the fact that the authorities, first of all, decided to release him, and second of all, took so much pity on him that he wasn't able to settle down because of the crimes that he committed in the past. So they sealed his record. Like, first of all, if I was living next to someone, I would want to know if they had murdered children in the past, if they had murdered in the past. Yeah. Like, that feels like some sort of knowledge that I would, I would like to have. So it just absolutely kills me that they were like, okay, go forth and live. Like, And also that like a sealed police record, shouldn't that be accessible in a pol- like an official police search? Yeah, you'd think so. Know. There are a lot of things that I despise <laughs> with my entire body about this, about this entire case in general, but specifically about this aspect of him not being able to like have those records open to the public. Yeah. I think they would have saved quite a few of those lives on that list if they had known yeah. that he was an offender. Um, okay. So, this is all happening. They don't know 
who's killing people. They haven't found a concrete list. And then they found 26-year-old June Stott. And this really shocked the authorities because she really didn't fit the profile. She wasn't a prostitute. She didn't use drugs. She wouldn't have been in a situation where he could have killed her. When she was found, she had been... This is really horrible. She had been strangled, anally mutated after death, had her labia removed, and was gutted from throat to crotch like a quote-unquote wild animal. Oh my god. This is really excessive. Yeah. Like, everything I learned from Criminal Minds is that this is a major escalation. Mm-hmm. A change in the victimology and an escalation in whatever he's doing. Mm-hmm. And it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, and I think this was kind of the straw that the police, that broke the camel's back where the police were like, we need help. So they got assistance from the FBI, the profilers. And at this point, they divided the 11 unsolved murders into subgroups according to method and position. And then they developed a profile using this that described the killer as a white male in his 20s or 30s who was strong, possibly with a previous criminal record, very familiar with the area, and comfortable enough with the victims that they would enter his vehicle without question. Um, There was a lack of sexual interference in any of the victims, so it indicated that it might be someone with sexual dysfunction. But this post-mortem injury that was inflicted on June Stott, and not on any other victim, was definitely an indication, like I think we were talking about, that the killer was becoming really comfortable around corpses, and probably returning to the crime scene again later to relive the attack. And I think that that was a major breakthrough in this case, because if they found out that he was returning to the crime scene later, yeah, like, you can kind of predict a next move. Um, yeah. Which I know typically involves having another victim, and that's yeah. horrifying, but they made it some headway, I guess, if you choose to look at the bright side of the absolute horror and brutality that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so they found a pair of discarded jeans near the river on December 31st, 1989. And these jeans had an ID card for a girl named Felicia Steffens. And so at this point, the police began an aerial search for the surrounding area. And on January 2nd, 1990, the helicopter spotted what appeared to be a naked female body that was lying on the ice surface by a bridge in the forest. This body was not Felicia Stephens. It was another missing prostitute named June Cicero, who had also been, again, horrible, horribly mutated postmortem. And I think they said that she was basically sawn in half. Oh my god. Yeah. On January 5th, 1990, Two days after her body was discovered by aerial surveillance, the police arrested Shawcross. Apparently, he was spotted by an eyewitness on police surveillance, standing near his car and either urinating or masturbating on a bridge over the creek near where her body had been dumped. Mm. So the police tracked down his car. Apparently, it was in his girlfriend's name. And they approached him. 
and I guess he was really willing to cooperate, but when they asked for his ID, his license, he admitted that he didn't have one and that he had been in jail for manslaughter. Okay. But the police at this point were unable to get him to admit to the murders, and they didn't have any concrete evidence tying him to the murders until they confirmed that a piece of jewelry that he had given to Clara Neal belonged to June Cicero. So the police threatened to implicate her in the killings, and at that point, Shawcross basically admitted to most of the murders. But here's the part that, again, I find disgusting, is that he had all of these really detailed excuses. He had been forced to kill each of them. Okay. Just, I don't know, like, just say that you are a horrible person at this point. Yeah. Um, but he did admit to killing two undiscovered victims, um, Maria Welsh and Darlene Trippy, and that basically led them to their bodies, or at least they were found and their families could have some sort of closure. Yeah. I'm sure it was absolutely not the closure they wanted, but yeah. at least they didn't have the hope that, that they were alive and were disappointed later on or something. I don't know, just... The bright side is looking very, very dull at this point. Yeah. Um, he did write a formal confession that was over 80 pages long. Wow. Um, in November of 1990, he was tried for 10 murders. And he ended up pleading not guilty because of insanity. So there was a forensic pathologist called Dorothy Lewis who testified that he had brain damage, dissociative identity disorder, and PTSD, along with the claims that he was sexually abused as a child, which could have lasted, like, had a lasting impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lewis claimed that there was another personality of his called Bessie who killed all of those people, and it wasn't actually him. And she argued that he should be institutionalized rather than being imprisoned. Okay. Yeah. But then we go back to, like all the other claims that he had made in the past. Um, And FBI criminal profiler Robert K. Ressler reviewed the claim for the prosecution and basically wrote a statement that, quote, his claim of having witnessed wartime atrocities was patently outrageous and untrue, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I guess this kind of casts, like, a shadow onto everything that he had said before about, like... He could have been lying about a lot of other things, I guess, is what happened there that yeah. people were getting, the jury was getting from it. Um, Dr. Park Dietz, psychiatrist, testified that he had an antisocial personality disorder. Um, and then later during testing, it was determined that he had a cyst pressing on the temporal lobe of his brain, as well as scarring on his frontal lobe which were areas that are responsible for decision-making and self-control. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, plot twist. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was eventually, I guess with all of the information that was presented, he was eventually declared sane and guilty of 10 counts of second-degree murder. So he received 25 years for each count, and that's like 215 total. Um... But if you remember, I said earlier he was, like, caught for 11, or 
prosecuted for 11 murders. This is only 10. Um, he was tried later on for Elizabeth Gibson's murder. And he pled guilty. Life sentence. Um, so you might be... And it's not going to get any worse. It gets worse. Oh, no. So he was at Sullivan Correctional Facility until his death. But in 2003, he was interviewed by a British reporter called Catherine English for a documentary that they were making on cannibalism. Oh. And he bragged about slicing and eating the genitals of three of his victims. Okay. He did refuse to discuss an earlier claim that he ate his first victim, Jack Blake. But I just... I didn't think it was going to get any worse. Yeah, I did not see that coming. And then they hit us with the cannibalism. Um, When he was 63 years old, he complained of pain in his leg. So on November 10th, 2008, he was taken to Albany Medical Center, where he went into cardiac arrest and died shortly after. He was pronounced dead at 9.50 p.m. And this is the point in the story where I can tell you that it does not get worse. Simply because the story is over. Yeah, I'd hope not. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't... I can't fathom a a story where it gets worse after he died. Um, I'm glad it doesn't get worse Mm -hmm. than this because that was horrific. Yeah. But you know what I always say? If I read it and I'm traumatized, I will be traumatizing you as well. Yeah. Aren't you just so glad that we're friends? <laughs> that was a very interesting story. Thank you. Thank you. I try. I try to make them as interesting as possible. Yeah. While still maintaining the horror. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this week was particularly bad because, like I said, it's a coping mechanism and everything that's happening in the world right now is horrific. Mm. So I decided to match that. <laughs> I'm in pain. And that's good. <laughs> <laughs> But my favorite part of the night comes now, where I have to ask you to change the subject for us. Oh, all right. Well, I had all that. Yeah. I'm going to have, well, it's going to be an interesting one. (laughs) (laughs) But, all right. I had a little mini vacation over the weekend. I love to see it. One of my friends has a beach house, so I went down to her beach house, and it was nice to not work for a few days and (laughs) relax go to the beach get sunburnt (laughs) you deserve it not the burnt part but the relaxing part (laughs) yeah it's not it's almost gone by now so that's good yeah and i we watched the new season of stranger things oh how'd you like it you've been wanting to watch that forever i know and then the so they split it into two volumes. So we watched volume one, and then volume two comes out on Friday. So Whoa. perfect timing. But it was really good. It was a lot darker than the other seasons, which was interesting. Yeah, but That tracks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was very good. Would highly recommend. I'm glad um, you liked And I'm it. very excited for volume two. Oh, yeah. Friday. But yeah, that's it for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got anything you like um. to add? Or any of your life updates? Do I have a life update? Oh, you know, I actually... Okay, so I started reading this series called Foundryside. 
Hmm. Um, I think, I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast, um, but I downloaded the first book like a year ago and then I just. Like actually getting into it? Recently, like Hmm. a few months ago. And I finished the second book today and then I learned that the third book came out today. Oh, wow. So I was just so happy that, you know, like, I finished it and I can immediately continue. (laughs) That's truly perfect timing. It was great timing. I had a blast. Wow. Yeah, it was was good. Yeah, it was the (laughs) the highlight of my day. Um, The highlight of my week, actually. I don't think things got much better than me Mm. finishing the book on time this week. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, that's that's all I have. Do you have anything else you'd like to share? I do not. Yes, I can. All right. So you can find us on Instagram at Grim Podcast. You can like our photos, DM us, follow us. And from our profile, there's a button to email us. You can email us at thegrimpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us thoughts on stories we have covered, stories you want us to cover, or life updates of your own. We also have a Twitter, which is Podcast Grim, and a Facebook, which is Grim Podcast. And other than that, just leave us a good review and tell your friends and family about us. Yeah, and we will see you guys next month for a paranormal story, which will be a bit lighter, hopefully, than this mm-hmm. week. Um, if you've stuck around this far, thank you for joining us on this episode of me traumatizing Maddie. <laughs> um, we appreciate you all. Yes. And, yeah, we will see you guys next week. And until then, stay safe out there. Yeah. Bye. Bye.